Okay, joining us now in this post-row world. I mean, why do you get to do the introduction every time? Nope. Is that the patriarchy? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I actually was thinking about that the other day when it said he said, she said. And I don't know why. Oh my God, do you remember how much crap people gave us for the name? Did they? Oh yeah. I forgot about that They now. did. They did. We should change it. Like We should like actually like change the logo where it says he said, she said, and put like drawn out like she said, he said, or something. She said, and she sometimes lets him have an opinion too. Yes. Something <laughs> like that. Listen, I, I'm... I'm I'm uh I'm my, I'm on my best behavior right now, just in general, you know, and I, I think Peter that is learning that women are a little bit like understandably touchy about the way that they are being treated by men at the moment. And I'm not saying you don't treat me poorly. That's not what I'm saying, but thank you for that. Yeah. You do not. You're great and you you try you you try your best to be a great ally and you are pretty feminist, but it is you know, you've you've caught flack from some of our other friends that certain things just don't land the way they did in a pre-Rowan well, world. Well, I do. I mean, I, I believe I'm funny. I know, as we have spoken before, you do not find me as funny as other people. Other people do. I mean, you definitely did not win Kids Against Humanity, so you're not That's the funniest, Shorsh. Uh, other people find me funny, but right now I know funny is not like, like my brand of funny is like. It just doesn't hit right it now. It doesn't hit right now. Just, so, just put it on pause for yeah, a little bit. I, like, I always tell you to read the room. Yep. And like on social media, like when people like, like there was somebody, I posted like what was, I would say is an allied tweet and like a subsequent tweet that was even more pro- this side of the argument, someone responded to it. And I normally I would have gone on a 10 tweet, you know, battle with it. And I'm just like, you know what? You're, you know, not, I, w- I didn't even want to be condescending. I just didn't even get into it because it's like, you know, the temperature, as we were talking about earlier today, the temperature is so elevated right now that I don't, uh, it's not that I don't want my words to be misconstrued. This isn't just, this is not something, I don't even know what to say right now. My, uh, you know, I, I'm still taking off blinders and things like that. Well, you know, you know that I'm pretty depressed about what has gone on, but let's take it a different direction. I just don't want to live in the darkness. So why don't we introduce our guests and talk about something <laughs> exciting? One of our favorite people. Absolutely. Aww, Very so excited sweet. that she has crossed the bridge. Um, <laughs> the last time a woman crossed the bridge uh, to meet with me, I married her. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, State Senator Janet Cruz of Hillsboro is with us. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. If you're a Mormon, I'd be willing to marry you, too. <laughs> I mean, we definitely welcome your cooking in our household. <laughs> we, well, are, uh, we are big fans. Um, tell us about, just tell the audience for, you know, because we have some statewide folks, uh, where you represent, you know, your, uh, his, your political history, that kind of thing. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Janet Cruz, and I was born in Ybor City. If you've ever been to the Columbia, you've been to my neighborhood. And um, I served in the House for eight years and rose to the rank of uh, minority House leader, which was an honor and a privilege and fascinating and frustrating all at the same time. Um, Then uh, once I finished my eight-year, my two four-year terms, I should say, I thought that I would come home and run for county commission and stay closer to home. Um, but on the very last day that I left Tallahassee, I was very frustrated by a vote that one of our local uh, electeds took. And I said, you know, I just can't let that happen. That's unfair. You can take a vote. Um, you can take a vote for or you can take a vote against, but you can't be a coward and walk away. Um, and so that was the day that I decided to 
um, get in a fight for my life and won by 411 votes, have been serving in the Senate for almost four years now, um, and I'm up for re-election. It's a Tampa seat that runs from MGDL Air Force Base all the way to Odessa, and uh, it comprises about 500,000 citizens, big district. You were running against, or someone was running against you. Uh-huh. Um, a person who I get along with <coughs> offline pretty well, uh, Sean Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in today's world, Sean Harrison's kind of a moderate Republican compared to a lot of the other elected officials. Mm-hmm. He had decided that he was going to get into the race. And then all of a sudden, um, during qualifying week, there was all sorts of dominoes and musical chairs, and he was left without a seat. And uh, Governor DeSantis, kind of like from a, with a lightning bolt, um, decided to endorse, decided that Jay Collins was going to move over. Uh, Jay Collins had been running for um, Congress. Um, he had first been wanting to challenge Kathy Castor. Then he moved over into the open seat, which I get. There's some redistricting stuff issues going on. And then all of a sudden now he is in the state Senate race. And Ron DeSantis has endorsed him. I think there's some sort of maybe like military history affinity between these two. Mm-hmm. I don't say this lightly, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I, I appreciate his service to the country and so forth. And he may be an amazing guy. I've never seen him. He has never been on, on covering that Senate seat for the last 20 years, I rem- and in fact, I will say, like, when you won in a special election, I remember I went around your district that day, and if you look on my Facebook page, I think I was the only person that covered. It was, you know, it was a low-voltage special election. You know, nobody really even covers those things. Mm-hmm. And I was taking pictures of Election Day in West Tampa. Um, I probably just wanted to get some great food. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, just as someone who's been following this in Tampa Bay. I've never seen this guy. Just never seen him in uh, around. Maybe he's doing something, um, and so I, I, I'm a little, I'm a little frightened by that prospect. And so uh, uh, that's where I'm coming down on that race. <laughs> I mean, you literally like left nothing. You just gave a whole speech there, and you didn't like ask a question. You just were like, <laughs> I'm just going to talk about how I don't know this guy. I mean, why don't you ask Janet? what she thinks about her opponent in the race. Yeah, what do you think about your opponent um, in the race? I, I, don't, I don't know him. You're right. I don't know anything about him. Now, I, you know, I know that I have folks that are probably checking up on him. All I know is that he has a nonprofit that travels the country doing barbecues. That's all I know. There are worse nonprofits to have. I mean, that sounds, that's, not a, that's not a bad nonprofit. Again, the guy may turn out to be a very decent guy. I guess my only fear for you, though, is the resource battle. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, uh, the incoming Senate president, Kathleen Pasadomo, that team, which has always done very well, except when they went up against you. And that was a case where I think it was $14 million, maybe? It was probably really about $20 million all in when you uh, take a look at groups that came from all over the country and PAC money. It was probably a $20 million race. We're talking about a state Senate race for $20 million. There are congressional races that don't cost a fraction of that. You can buy like half of like WFLA for $20 million and just air 
your we own. We should have done that in retrospect. I think that would have been a great idea. Um, and, you know, so I, I worry that with the limited resources Lauren Book and her team have, now that she's got a primary, mm-hmm. um, that there's only so much that can be done. Uh, I think you're on home turf, so I don't think, I mean, we know you're on home turf, and I know that you have the name ID and the record, but it's just like, these folks, you know, that's why I think they're playing not just in your race, but they're playing in Loran Osley's yes, race. Yes, they are. Um, you know, I, I, they're, they're playing in a lot of seats where, you know, they can be wrong, you know, six days of the week, and you don't have the luxury of really ever being wrong or misstepping or, mm-hmm. and it's not a great year for Democrat or election cycle for Democrats. So there I go again. I've just painted myself into a corner with just more positive uh, great news. Well, let's go with positive great news. Okay. Janet has actually had a good week. I mean, you have a great, strong celebration, something that women can celebrate right now. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your domestic violence bill that you managed to pass and the governor signed into law? That is correct. A governor signed. I think it's been a couple of weeks now, but it was Senate Bill 654. Mm-hmm. And it really modernizes the domestic violence restraining order process. Um, And uh, it's my hope that victims and survivors of domestic violence um, and their loved ones will be able to rest a little easier knowing that the restraining order will be served faster than ever. And if you can believe this, Michelle, uh, you know, the process of a restraining order, I hope no one ever actually has to... to, uh, apply for one of those for protection, but this this application goes before the judge and then it's granted. And typically, um, I would say a very high percentage of these requests are from women who are in domestic violence situations. So they finally muster up the courage to go get help. Someone helps them, like the spring will help them um, fill out this restraining order. So they they muster up the courage to do all of that. They go stand before the judge as a nervous wreck, and the judge grants the restraining order. And from there, believe it or not, in statute, that restraining order gets mailed to whatever uh, jurisdiction necessary to serve this restraining order on this man or woman. Typically, it's um, a man, ex-husband, or a boyfriend. And... Um, you know, we're looking at a, at six days at least before the process is completed, and then they have to go find um, the person and serve them with that. So if you can imagine that there is this magic uh, magical ability to expedite all of that, and it's called email, huh. <laughs> and it's called, uh, you know, sending it uh, encrypted, and it's called sending it as a uh, return receipt. And I was just shocked when I found out we were still using this old process that added days before a woman. I mean, you know, there's um, domestic violence that's physical, and then there's domestic violence that's psychological, which yes. is, um, you know, the the abuser sitting in front of someone's um, place of employment, walking around someone's place of employment, uh, passing by the house any number of times. Um, and there's nothing that the police can do until there's an injunction for protection. That person can continue to terrorize um, the victim until this is served. So it's not just about um, making life better for the victim. It's about saving lives. 
um, we estimate that we'll save many lives a year, and, and the the numbers will, uh, in the coming years, will tell us what difference we made, but um, this is about saving lives. It really is. It really is, and I, I can tell you, first, I want to say thank you. As You're welcome. You're right when you say that it, it takes a lot of courage to get up and to leave and to even ask for a restraining order. And it's a terrifying, as someone who has had to get a restraining order, it's a, it's a wow. terrifying prospect. The entrance into the courthouse that you have to go through, I, I mean, I, I can still remember it. The dark room, the screen on the glass as you're having to hand through the form. And you're hopeful because first you have to get a temporary injunction before you get your hearing for your permanent, for not your permanent, but for your six month injunction. And it's all based on a paragraph you write. And you have to hope that that paragraph you write is compelling enough for some faceless person you've never met to decide, okay, this woman's fear is real. Okay, we can give her a temporary injunction and that's literally just a piece of paper that makes it easier for the police to arrest someone. It doesn't even mean that you're safe. It just make, means it's a little bit easier for police to arrest someone. Uh, so what you've done is great. Because I, I can tell you, we I know my family had to hire private investigators. Because back when I got mine, it had to be served. Um, and we had to hire private investigators to get it served by a law enforcement officer to find the person. And you're right when you say that it's not just physical. Um, I would have an escort to my college classes because oh, that was just the way it was. That was one of the, they want to disrupt your life all across the board. They want to make you scared to, to exist. And so you are going to save lives. You're going to do more than that too. You're going to save girls' aspirations, women's. I don't think people realize that it in, impacts your place of employment. Before that restraining order is in place and is served, Oftentimes, abusers will go to a woman's place of employment and harass her there. And many times it leads to a woman being fired because it's too much of a disruption of the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's true. And people don't believe that's true, right? Right. They don't. Um, I almost was fired. So I really I, and I had a great employer, but it was when other people are afraid to come to work, you have to make a choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what you have done is amazing. So thank you for that because I mean, well, you're welcome. That week could be the difference between a woman not losing her job or a woman not losing her life, right? It could. And let me just mention something too because I think folks in the workplace or family members will look at the woman um, who's scared to death of whoever her uh, abuser is and afraid, and they pass judgment on the woman like, why does she put up with that? Why does she do that? Why not pass judgment on the abuser? And, you know, make comments about him and his bad behavior. But for some reason, a woman takes a bit of a, a you know, a, another beating from families and people she works with over um, the fact that she's petrified to leave him. Do you know that almost 75% of women who are killed by their abusers are murdered when they attempt to leave or after they've left the abusive relationship? So... That's the real danger. To, that's the danger zone, and that's why I'm trying to reduce that by five or six days, or maybe even more. Actually, um, you know, this is a real problem, and um, those of us did, that didn't grow up ex experiencing or witnessing any kind of domestic abuse, whether it be verbal or uh, physical, you know, uh, it seems 
unreal, but it's a very, very real issue. And uh, I had a luncheon for women and um, Mindy Murphy from the spring, who is an absolute saint. She played a testimonial video from a woman who talked about um, her ex-husband who walked into her place of business with three pit bulls um, and just did terrible things to her and her children are so loving and so kind. You see them and they appreciate what she did and how hard it was for her and how the spring helped her. But this is a real problem. And um, I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic where people were at home more often. And, uh, you know, the real statistics paint an incredibly stark but crystal clear message that survivors of domestic violence are the most vulnerable when they try to leave, and that that was the that was the genesis for um, for this bill, trying to make it easier for a woman or a man to leave and um, keeping them safer, because that's a critical time. So I'm very proud of of this legislation. It will probably go down as one of is a simple bill that says let's use email instead of uh, snail mail. It's Isn't so it ridiculous. Isn't it that it like it it took someone like you, to get this through the legislature. It's crazy that we just didn't make that fix naturally. What's Almost cr- like an agency rule or something like What's that. What's crazier yeah. still is that there were there was an organization that really pushed back on this. And I was, I mean, I had a screaming match. Which, no, not going to do she's that. She's not going to do that, that she got the bill through. <laughs> oh, really? Happy. Okay. They did I, not, I, I they did not endorse revenge. it. <laughs> but, um, you know, Peter, sometimes... You make an agreement to get things through yeah. that you won't necessarily share the fight behind the scenes. And and I, I must give credit where credit is due as well. I, this was, you know, a bipartisan effort. Rep Federhoff uh, worked it on the House side. Mm. And she was as much of a bulldog as I was. You know, they'd come to us and ask us to make changes. And we said no. I mean, actually, we probably said, hell no. Can I do that on a podcast? You can, uh, I'm not saying yeah, that. We're not, we're, <laughs> I don't think we're not G-rated. We're fine. And okay. I don't think this is the organization you're talking about. I don't think it is. But it's like, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, sometimes, and I'm just going to say it, like, because I do some work with them as, like, the Florida Sheriff's Association or law enforcement where, like, you know, the biggest, if you if you think about the ranks of law enforcement, they're probably going to be very strong supporters of the Second Amendment, you know, and are, or at least are, are probably going to be gun owners. I mean, almost by their job. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of cops that are like, eh, I don't like guns. Um, but then when you see the people who are, like, typically the, like, the people that push back on, like, the reversal of the New York um concealed carry law it's usually law enforcement it's like the sheriffs who are like hey trust us the last thing we want to do with is is open carry and so i just certainly trust us the last thing we want to do is hit send on an email versus (sighs) put a postage stamp on a letter no i i I don't even think it's them i could just see like it's the clerks or somebody who just you don't the the uh, inertia of bureaucracy like well you know it's like the catholic church in a way well we've never done it this way before so we can't do it yeah, there are so many barriers to helping people that to like the average citizen, it's common sense that that barrier shouldn't be there. And so I'm so glad that you've done this. And the governor signed it. I mean, and God, he did I sign mean, it. had your name on it. I mean, the governor, I mean, <laughs> although, I mean, I, don't, I, I think like the person you get brownie points for that. I guess you're I lucky do. as long as Joe Gruder's his bill, name is not on a bill that it should go through. Be, I mean, or Wilton Simpson's. I mean, it seems like that. 
was the two biggest. Gruders had Gruders had three bills vetoed last week, um, which is kind of interesting. I mean, the, I mean, I'm thrilled by one of the bills he had vetoed last week. Which one? You the didn't, alimony, you didn't like yeah, the, uh, alimony <laughs> reform bill. I mean, as a woman who you know gave up her successful career. No, you were the breadwinner. Not just it wasn't like you were like. Oh, like a part-time lawyer while I was working at the firm or something. You were, when we were first got together, thank God you, you know, you carried us through the first, uh, for at least two and a half years. Well, yeah, but thank God you looked at me and just said, you're right. The most important thing is for you to be home with our baby. Like that's what you're being called to do. That's mm-hmm. what your desire is. I'm just going to work harder and make more money. And you lived up to the promise, well, right? if we had. But I mean, I mean, I did give up a very yeah. successful career. <laughs> And it's a choice we made, and I stand by it. But if this alimony reform bill had been in place when we had Ella Joyce, I don't know that I would have made that choice. I don't like to think about us getting divorced. Well, we never will. <laughs> um, so That's never happening. That's yeah. what she always, she's like, you're stuck with me. I'm like, I know. I'm stuck. You're stuck with me. I'm like, do you remember those vows we took? But no, right. it's a, that's my least favorite bill. Um, the 50-50 split on child custody. We talked about it beforehand. Like... Or not 50-50 split, it, that the presumption starts at 50-50. The thing that kind of like, I, I see where it's coming from. It's these young dads in the Florida legislature, and kudos to them. They are, as from on the surface level, if not deeper, um, they seem to be very engaged fathers and so forth. I almost wish that they would go down to the courthouse and kind of look at like, or you go know, down to CPS. Go down to the CPS investigation office. Well, I, I say the courthouse because they're not there. Like, right. I mean, you know, when you were doing these hearings for custody and stuff, like, why do you think we have laws to enforce child custody payments? It's mm-hmm. not a, I don't, when I see that list, I don't see a lot of women's names on those lists of women not paying their child custody. I see a lot of dudes' names on there. Yeah. And it's just like, I, 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 I joke with people, I think it's, kind of a throw me in the briar patch kind of situation for a lot of women where they're like, hey, if you're going to enforce 50-50, that would mean that he would have to show up about 49% more than he is already. Isn't so, that so true? And you know, Peter, my um, my husband's children, who are adults now, they, back then, you know, probably 45 years ago through a divorce, maybe, yeah, I think about 40 years ago, they, uh, my husband was insistent that he see his children and he wanted 50 50 and he fought for it and he was there for them but if you talk to my bonus kids they will tell you it was very hard for them because they were living out of a backpack you know a week at moms mm-hmm. a week at dads a week at moms and then the older brother who was the more responsible he was like the parents made him uh, kind of a surrogate parent. Don't don't let your sister forget this book. Don't let your sister forget this. So he had to pack himself and pack her stuff because she was a few years younger. So they were very resentful of the fact that uh, that they had to go back and forth. I think even today they'll tell you that they didn't believe that was the best case scenario, and they had a dad that was very involved. And it's it's a I, that's what I think. That's why what made that dangerous codifying that is that the unintended consequences Mm -hmm. yes there's all the best intentions like I get that you want to encourage involvement of fathers but in addition to what you said it also creates an extra burden on our teachers because they have to if there's a school project due the on Friday but 
Susie's going home to dad's on Monday and Susie never comes back with her homework when she comes back from dad's. Mm -hmm. Susie's such trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then they've got to make sure that they get a second set of materials home to Susie's mom's house and, and also communicate with her. And I'll tell you as an involved parent at the school that volunteers with a lot of different organizations where I'm working one-on-one with kids, you notice the difference the weeks that the kids have been home with their dads. And these are great dads. Mm -hmm. They're great dads versus when they've been home with their moms. And Mm -hmm. it's, I'm not diminishing the role of the father, but you're right. It's very hard to be living out of a backpack and swapping back and forth. And it's very easy for people of means to say, well, can't dad just have all the supplies at dad's house and then mom have all the supplies at mom's house. It doesn't work that way. Everybody doesn't have the resources. and you definitely don't get two sets of textbooks from a public school. On this bill. That's correct, Michelle. So true. Yeah. And I'm just going to put it out. I, I get to say the things, you know. that Absolutely. Well, this bill was carried by Rich Workman originally like four mm-hmm. or five years ago who, you know, was later accused of sexual harassment of a state senator, you know, turned out to be an Uber driver. It was kind of just a douche overall. And so I've got no problem. Peter. And, uh, we don't need to use that word. Um, uh, so, you know, that's why people, they're like, what's Shorsh going to say next? Um, <laughs> I will say the other part of it, I think that, Michelle, you kind of get to with the unintended con- consequences. So many of these bills are a um, are birthed out of, the, out of term limits in the sense that people who, you know, because there's such churn and burn on lawmakers, they think that the idea that they just came up with, that they heard <laughs> from, from an organization. It's so true. Is, is the... Is the is the end all be all, and it's like the Harry Truman quote. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, except the history you don't know. And I feel like it's like I feel like some of the people that were carrying it now, carrying bills like that. I wish, I wish somebody who had served in the legislature even 15 years ago could go to them and go like, Yeah, we looked at that, we studied it, we had the bar in, we had the divorce attorneys in, we had some uh, fatherhood groups in, and it. It just didn't work. And that's why we shelved that a while ago. And that's why we're not, you know, nothing has changed in society that really warrants bringing this bill. And there's, it seems like there's, there's a lot of these bills. I also add in kind of the Jeff Brandis angle, which is we don't study a lot of these bills. Like we don't turn these bills over to actuarials or to economists or to think tanks like the property insurance bill was just like hey you know what you know it sounds good why don't we do x y and z and and the only um basis for that x y and z is a lawmaker or an interest group saying x y and z is really good there isn't any third party vetting there's some senate staff stuff but that gets overlooked and is manipulated but there isn't like a, a third party barometer of like hey if you allow for retroactivity in the alimony bill it will tear up 473,000 divorce agreements in the state and will put a backlog in the civil court system that will backlog cases for 2.73 years or something like that. There's just none of that. It's just all emotion. It's all Facebook. It's all bluster and who, you know, and, and that's I, I, of the many issues that I have with the legislature. Term limits is my like least favorite thing. Um, I wish you guys could at least serve 12. Um, I, th- I, think I think 12 it would be great. Actually, I um, the civics books will tell all of us that term limits are probably good. Um, my predecessor on my house seat, Evelyn Martinez, he was actually my predecessor twice removed, but 
He'd served for 27 years. He was an absolute expert on criminal justice. And maybe that's not so great, but I will tell you that as a result of eight-year term limits, who really runs Tallahassee? Um, staff, staff than me. and what? lobbyists. Oh, oh Peter. I forgot on. you, Peter. Uh, um, but, you know, honestly, the ego on him. where is the... I have the, to live with it. No, the mega, I the think co- it's the, the mega continuity, lobbying firms. You know, it is. It I truly think it's is. The, I, I think it's the, you know, the lobbying... I remember I did an article like four years ago, and and it was like, will we see a $10 million a year lobbying firm in Florida anytime soon. And there was just an article last week in Politico basically saying, hey, a lot of lobbying firms throughout the country are eschewing D.C. and are just making, they're making D.C. money at the state level. And it it pointed, it name-checked the Southern Group and it name-checked Capital City Consulting. And then Ballard was quoted in it as well. And they were all plus, they were 15 million plus a year in revenue at the state level. And now... You just you you just did this thing where you're like, um, there's now a six year ban on former lawmakers becoming lobbyists. So unfortunately, Senator Cruz, you're not going to be able to join Anna at Ballard Firm in nope. a couple, in a few years. But now you've basically it's like telling the NFL or the NBA players that you you can get done with college, but you can't come join the league till you're 27. Well, that would never work. And but now so you've totally protected. The lobbying mm-hmm. industry. And so, again, I go back to well, I you think have. the most powerful people are those mega lobbying firms. And, you know, honestly, I think how fair is that if you serve for 16 years in the legislature? Uh, I think by then you pretty well understand it. And I don't want to come back and lobby, but there are a lot of folks that are quite a bit younger than me that uh, have, uh, you know, it's about access. Lobbying is about access. It's not about buying someone's vote, but it's about access so that you can explain what your client is asking for. So, um, you know, I would think that most um, members who've left for a year or two probably have great access to um, to their juniors. You get to come juniors. on the floor if nothing. I mean, you get to come on the floor, you, um, you know, uh, you walk into the governor's club and people still remember you and that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily even a bad thing. Like you, I mean, let's say you didn't want to like lobby, be a contract lobbyist. Would you not be a great association president or, you know, uh, civic group president? Nonprofit or of yeah, some sort. But yeah. now you can't go lobby for that appropriation. So again, I think that that is another, you know, my good friend, Will Weatherford, who I love and I love pretty much too. worship. I mean, he wrecked the campaign finance system in the state mm-hmm. with, like, good government. They, him and Don Gates, the last time somebody did, like, a speaker and a president got together beforehand and came up with great ideas. And everybody's like, well, you got the outs- you got the old guy and the new guy. And Will was going to run for governor. And he's like, hey, you know what? Let's do this thing where we'll have political committees and you can just raise money to the political committees and we're going to take the caps off. And everybody's like, oh, and Integrity Florida was like, hey, this is a great reform. And I was just like, I was at the time talking about, I remember writing a couple of posts about how I disagreed with my dear friend, Will Weatherford, and it's turned to a thing now where it's like, there's no campaign finance regulation in Florida. You can raise $100,000 from a, a nonprofit that nobody knows the donors for, and that can get bounced around. And that's 
how you get ghost candidates financed out of Alabama. You know, looking back, I was part of that team with Weatherford. And looking back, (laughs) I think (laughs) allowing and creating these PACs in retrospect was not a great idea. The first thing that it did was take a lot of power away from the party because the money would go to the Mm -hmm. party. And those were the folks, again, we talk about those that have the experience. Those were the folks that had the experience at running campaigns and what we should or shouldn't do. Um, And now we have everyone collecting their own money via PACs. So whether you know what you're doing relative to spending that PAC money or don't, um, it's not sitting with a group of experts that can say, you know, we should invest here, we shouldn't invest there. So when they're done with it now, this this horrible trend that I love this new trend where you're in your last term and you're still raising money for a committee. You oh. are not even on the ballot anymore. And this is like, this started a couple of years with a couple of state senators. Um, and it's, they raise hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. dollars. They put that in their committee. And then when they're done with the legislature, they convert that money over to a private, I don't know the designation, 501c4, 501c3. They're allowed to con- contribute into that. Then that money's gone. And there's no tracking on that money at all. I mean, you, it's so egregious, and I, I don't know. That's going down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry. I think like- I, I I do think that's unfair to the clients of lobbyists that they are forced to ask for money for someone who is oh, gone. Oh, the lobbyists hate it the most. I mean, the they should hate they, it the most. Hate. I think the one thing that is interesting about DeSantis, and it was it was a prominent lobbyist who said this to me, was one thing that DeSantis has done, and it's not the case with the legislators, but. He's destroyed the idea of the powerful bundling lobbyist. And it would used to be, mm-hmm. you know, and we had a we had a friend who was just like, I want to give this guy $250,000 just to, you know, go get the meeting that you have to go do and everything like that. He doesn't care. You know, if he's got 43 billionaires, I think is the number right now, mm-hmm. who are contributing to his committee, he doesn't need your $10,000 con- check from the cement mixers of Florida Association. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, maybe you got five of those, and that's how it used to be. You would, you would work really hard to get. I mean, you know, you'd raise Charlie Crist forty thousand dollars, and then he'd ask you where the next forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that that is gone too. So it's just it. I don't know. It's it. it I would say maybe we li- live in interesting times, but I like that tweet that somebody said the other day. They're like, I'm really tired of living in interesting times. well the problem is the billionaires are pushing out the millionaires aren't they in this process it's just like let's go buy a race and i mean we saw what uh what governor scott did he just came in a relatively unknown individual with a really really good comms team some great commercials that said let's get to work and super disciplined Oh, never went off message. And he was like a robot. He was so disciplined. Folks that yeah. folks that may have voted for Alex, maybe those that swing voter, you know, his message was so great at a time that you needed to hear that. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. And people blinked. They were like, "Okay, I think he's going to put people back to work." Um, but that's an example of what extreme uh, campaign dollars can do. He's still going down that path. I don't know if you like follow it or not, but like, you know, we we. We have some pushback, in fact, with the Scott people all the time. You know, he is—he's got that tax plan, the the word that you everybody has to kick in, and I think mm-hmm. it's something like forty-nine percent of this country is at such a 
income level that they don't have to contribute anything. It's kind of ridiculous to ask somebody that's making Push it down on the poor again, right? To, and he's like, no, they need to have skin in the game. Um, and he, how about he, food on the table? <laughs> yeah, he, he continued. That's good. He continues like he, he, you know, he got pushed off of that by McConnell, um, and said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm the majority leader or if I'm the majority leader, we're not going to get into that stuff. He continues to push it. And it's like, there's something psychological there about, and it's about how he was raised. He says he was raised in, um, um, a house, a housing projects mm-hmm. and like he had to work at the donut shop literally and there's something and I think about it and this will be my segue alert you know you think about like Clarence Thomas I thought Maureen Dowd had an incredible column this weekend and mm-hmm. she talks about because she was there when Bush won nominated Clarence Thomas and Kenny Bunkport and um, Bush was so George Bush was so upset about the Willie Horton criticism and during the Dukakis race, that he really wanted to do something to win back black Americans. I don't know what a preppy New England white Republican, like how much inroads he was going to get, but like he had thought like, hey, I'm going to go find another Colin Powell, but for the, for the, um, basically, you know, in that vein, like I've elevated this, this was pre-Gulf War, but he had elevated Colin Powell and he wanted that. And with that, because of the psychology of that, you get Clarence Thomas. And then you look at Clarence Thomas and you look at, you know, remember, it was Joe Biden who signed off on him. You know, it was Joe Biden who and other all-white male senators who basically said, hey, this sounds like this Anita Hill person. You know, it sounds like a little he said, she said stuff. And, you know, this it all happens to us. Hey, haven't we all been here? Let's give this guy a pass. And Clarence Thomas has been stewing on this for 30 years mm-hmm. and he got what he wanted on Friday with the undoing of women's rights. And so that's the greatest segue that I've ever come up with. And <laughs> although I know you love when I use the word segue because it's like not at all. It's not what you're supposed to do in a segue. I know. Don't talk about the segue. Don't talk about don't talk about Bruno. Let me I'll start it this way and I'll let okay. you guys talk more about this. Where and where I feel like this is gonna be like when JFK was shot in a way. Where and where were you? What were your initial thoughts? 11 o'clock on Friday when the uh, uh, ruling uh, came down. I was in a meeting and my phone just blew up. And it is true, though, I don't think I'll ever forget that sinking feeling that I have. I mean, honestly, guys, where, what, what era and what year are we living in? You know, where are we here? Um, the SCOTUS is direct attack on women and our access to health care. It's regressive and uh, it'll cost women their lives. You know, Roe versus Wade 50 years ago, 50 years ago, we're stepping back in time 50 years. And very quickly, let me just say this. In 1973, Roe versus Wade, um, I was a junior in high school and pregnant. And I was 16 and I was scared to death and I ignored it for many months because I just didn't know what to do. Came from a, um, a family of Catholics. You know, my mom went to OLPH in Ybor City and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, finally just, you know, fessed up to my mom about what was going on, had a boyfriend, my only boyfriend for a long time. And, you know, my mom was the one that said, well, what do you want to do? And we explored the options that were in front of us. Um, And ultimately, 
my boyfriend at the time and I decided that we would get married and we would raise this baby together, and that's Anna. And uh, 50 years later, um, I have an amazing child, and that was my decision. But it's important to note that that was the decision that I made with myself and the baby's father at the time, my boyfriend, my mom, and my God. It was my choice. And I, I don't. I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that um, a woman has the right to make her health decisions among herself and her family and her God and her beliefs, but we don't have the right to impose our beliefs on others. You know, we just don't have that right. I think that um, if you want to change things, then maybe you should get into your churches and work on this and work with the youth and uh, and try to make a difference there. But, you know, when we intercede the whole uh, government and uh, church and state, I worry a lot about that. But what I mostly worry about are the fact that this is not going to stop a woman from making her decision. She'll just make that decision and it won't be legal anymore and it will be dangerous, more dangerous. It will be in back rooms and, uh, you know, my, um, my grandmother, when she... Uh, God bless her. She lived till she was 95, but she started getting a little demented. And we were talking when my um, when my dad died, and she was talking about her three children. Her her youngest had already passed away. My dad died, and she was talking about how um, she had three children. And then she told me she had three children and two terminations. And I said, Nana, you did that? I mean, this is a woman that was born at the turn of the century, and she's like, Yeah, honey. She said, you know, we were all cigar factory workers, and um, there was no birth control pill back then, and you couldn't afford to feed another mouth. Um, it was a woman that was, you know, you go back around here in Ybor City and up these stairs, and, you know, you paid her just about your week's salary, but she took care of it, and that is where we're headed. That is what will happen, and it makes me very sad, and... Uh, no one wants a woman to willfully terminate a pregnancy. Uh, you know, when it happens, it should be rare. But now we're saying that even in the case in Florida, in the case of incest or rape, we can't even consider this. It makes me very sad. And, you know, I'm just still kind of reeling and in a bit of shock that this has actually happened. But it did. And we had some justices that promised us in the in the process that they weren't going to be part of this, but they lied. Yep, they lied, and there's no recourse for us. We've just been sent back 50 years. And it's just kind of, Peter said to me today, you know, baby, you didn't sleep very well last night. And I said, I haven't slept well since the court overturned Roe. And I don't have any personal experience with it. I, I, I never was in need of a healthcare service. Um, Everyone knows that my reproductive system almost killed me, though, mm. uh, and I have been unable to sleep because I now know, like, with complete certainty, oh. that this country thinks that our value is only in our ability to bear children and that we are not equal. And as someone who is only able to have one child, now doesn't even have the organs to create another one. 
very clearly I'm less of a woman to this country too. And, you know, we were on vacation and I was packing up for us to come home. And Ella was in the room and Peter said, Michelle, look. And I read it on his computer screen. And I was like, punch the gut. And Ella was in the room and I needed to process it because I, I didn't know how to deal with this with a nine-year-old daughter. So I walked into the other room. I sat down on a chair and I just took some deep breaths. And Ella could see something was wrong. And she came over to me and said, Mommy, what's wrong? I said, well, the Supreme Court just ruled that, you know, women don't have rights to make healthcare decisions like men do. And I said, there's a lot more to it, kiddo, but you're a little young. We'll talk about it more another time. And she just gave me a hug and like gates opened up and I started sobbing on her head. I said, I can't do this. So I went to the bathroom, I composed myself, and then I took my daughter on a walk. We went, we sat down at a very beautiful, peaceful spot. And I said to her, you know, I, I didn't want to brush this off with you because it's too big of a day. And you're not, I, I know you're not going to understand it right now, but I, what I want to tell you is one, you shouldn't be afraid because by God's grace, you're, and by your pure dumb luck, you're a child of means. So this, what happened today is actually likely not going to impact you because mommy and daddy will be able to provide for you whatever you shall need for your entire life. I said, but I spend so much of your life talking to you about your privilege and how sad mommy always is for the kids who don't get to sit home, sit down at a dining room table with both parents every night and eat a home cooked meal, who don't necessarily even have food in their house. The kids, like when you were home from the pandemic and you were able to do virtual school and I talked to you about the kids who didn't have the technology to even do that. They didn't have Wi-Fi in their house. They most certainly didn't have an iPad. Their parents would then go wait in the lines at their schools for their laptops that the government provided for the virtual schooling, but then their parents couldn't figure out how to operate them because their parents didn't have the education and given an opportunity. I said, and I talk to you all the time about how mommy gives you all the books and you can read and how there are kids who can't afford books and the only books they get access to are the ones in their schools and their schools don't have the same books that you have and they can't read and how those kids are always going to be behind you and how it's not fair and how this ruling impacts those kids and how it's just not fair and that mommy's heart breaks for those kids. And Elle looked at me and said, what do we do? Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know. I said, we can say some prayers right now. And so that's what I did with my nine-year-old. But then I think about like the conversations, our friends with middle school girls, high school girls, and friends who have kids, daughters going off to college and the conversations they're going to have to have with them now. You had a friend who talked about what some kids are doing now. I had a friend who's told me a couple of her girlfriends have reached out to her so upset because their daughters are in high school and they are hoarding Plan B pills because they're afraid that they're going to be taken away. And mm -hmm. I, 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 I cannot, I don't, like, I don't think the men in America know what it's like to suddenly be told in one ruling that we're less than. There's not a single medical procedure that a man is prevented from having done to his body by law. We tried. I, I mean, there was a movement to chemically castrate males who were habitual sexual predators to stop them from men who were impregnating 12-year-old babies. And that couldn't pass because 
And I'm not saying that it should have. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying like this country already decided that that was inhumane. Why is it inhumane to force a woman to carry a pregnancy and to put her life on hold, to relegate some women to a life of welfare because they won't be able to feed that mouth and because that man won't be there? Mm -hmm. That is true. It's it's not fair. Or, and to and in many and in some states, little girls are. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics had to issue a statement saying that this was a horrible decision that children should not be forced to carry a, a pregnancy. And I just. It's so sad on so many levels, Michelle. When I think about, um, I had a group of about tw 10 or 12 young women that came in that were all um, foster care. And um, I think they were teenagers. They probably had just recently aged out of, but they were there to advocate. And we went into this deep dive of a discussion and I asked them, how many of you have been sexually abused? Um, because one brought it up. and almost half of them had been sexually abused in a foster home. And so is that what we're doing? We're taking these unwanted pregnancies and turning them into foster children who may or may not get adopted, who will be bounced from um, one foster home to another. And maybe a very, maybe a low percentage will find a home, a loving home, but um, you know, this is a real crisis, and we better take a look at our budget and the money that we spend on foster care and aftercare. You know, typically now with foster care, you're 18, you age out, and, you know, you get moving with a little bit of help, but not much. Um, and these are kids that probably haven't learned nearly enough in the way of life skills. They've kind of been abused and neglected, and it's such a sad story, and here we are. We're going to pour hundreds of thousands of kids into this system, so we better make sure that we take a piece of this giant budget we have in Florida and, um, you know, provide um, good health care. You know, most of Medicaid is children. Most of the folks enrolled in Medicaid are children. So um, we better open up that budget, better draw down some federal dollars so that we can expand it. And um, we have so much work to do. I mean, we have so much work to do as a result of this. We really do. And, you know, on that same vein, I, and it, just it won't this, be the people that are, it won't be the people who support this decision who will be putting in the work. To fix it. To fix, to fix it. all the unintended. Of all course the not. About like, you know, Rubio with his like, well, we need to have a, a life agenda and things like that. Like, yeah, all of that stuff, like the, like the foster care system, like um, we need to, we, I mean, as Michelle is so want to, point out, you know, this is the only wealthy country without paid family leave, mm -hmm. you know. I a mean, bill that, Rubio a bill that at least we has some on. idea. Rubio is saying, and this is just, this is so Marco, um, he wants to have women draw down three months of their Social Security in advance so that they can use it now. And you're just like. So, so that we protect the corporations yeah. that would have to offer right. that. You know, uh, <laughs> there are people begging for help and and. You know shortages. I think that uh, working at Walmart now pays just short of eighteen to twenty dollars an hour. Well, how about if you offer some paid family leave or uh, create benefits um, specific to health care coverage that you can afford? Talked to a woman the other day that worked at one of those check cashing places, and she made she's making a a decent wage, but in order for her to have 
health care coverage, she has to contribute $350 yeah. a month. That's impossible. That is impossible for her. Her two children are on kid care, which is the Medicaid program, but she is bare. She doesn't have any health care coverage. What does she do? I asked her. She goes to the emergency room if it gets really, really bad, and we all pay for that. It's a sad situation, and I remember one day, like it was yesterday, in the in the member dining room where I, I heard one arrogant member say to another arrogant member, if you can't feed them, don't breed them. So it all comes down to irresponsibility. And I don't know, maybe at 16, I was a bit irresponsible when I became pregnant, but you were 16. I was 16. Kids, people I mean, are irresponsible at 16 years old, right? They shouldn't have to pay a price. For the rest of their life, mm -hmm. if they don't have the support system, mm -hmm. like thank God you had support, and it to was help hard. You make that decision, and it was not easy what you did. You had, I mean, I, this is not to say it by any means that it was an ideal situation, but the fact that you had a mother that you could talk to and was that you were not abused, or, or and that, geez, you even had that you had faith in your life. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a big. A lot of people mm -hmm. don't have that. I mean, yeah, I. I it is a, it's, it's beyond, I, I was saying to it Michelle. It is so heavy, isn't it? It's, it's really heavy. It's so heavy. It's, um, I, like I said to Michelle, like, so I've had, uh, I know where Michelle's at in this sense. Like she, like on the 20 election, I was having panic attacks, um, uh, because like I, and she, like, she really taught me about meditation at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, the workload was insane, um. I was worried about Trump winning and like there being, and it's not, I thought there would be violence. I, I, I thought January 6th would happen earlier. In fact, we hired security for our house. I was just like, I'm like, Michelle, I know it's crazy. It, on it, election day. On election day. It now mm -hmm. sounds crazy. It sounded crazy at the time. It didn't sound crazy on January 7th because I was just like, well, what happens if something bad happens and we write Florida politics? Like you don't think some lunatic, which we are surrounded by, mm -hmm. and we've got the twenty foot Biden flag out, and we've got the, or the black, twenty foot Black Lives, black Matter. Lives Matter flag uh -huh. out. Do you, what do you think? House. Whose house do you think that they're going to, you know, throw a brick through the window or whatever? I don't think we were in mortal danger. I just didn't want shit to happen. But not long story short, I was having this, I was having these continued panic attacks because it was like, shit, we are going to have to like Gilead out of here because this country is going to fall apart, and. I'm not, I'm not there yet on row, but I'm like, I said to Michelle, the temperature now, like one of the ideas of that Biden was, is that it was going to just lower the temperature on everything that we were going to like, our Trump's going to go away and we were going to like, you know, it's going to be calm at least. And we won't have a constitutional crisis every, every month. Clearly that's no longer the case. And now what the road situation does like this, even there is no snapping to the fingers here. There is no Thanos this is going to be just horrible for years. Like it's going to be, I don't know that there's going to be an undoing and it's just going to put the temperature at 180, 190, mm -hmm. 200 mm -hmm. all the time. And we're, I mean, we were already redlining already. I don't know. I don't like this country is in a pandemic with in, runaway inflation and we have a massive war in, in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and now you just took the cultural war and just set it on fire. And I'm like, I don't. And then Clarence Thomas said, made it clear that he continues to what? set the cultural war on fire. That his goal is to continue undoing all the progress this country has made, except for the bit of progress that benefited him. 
Of course. Of Am course. I allowed to say the only pushback that I agree with is that we are over... And see, as I say this, like, I don't even want to say... Go. No, 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 this is what it, this is the space. I will... <laughs> I mean, A, like, you know, I'll fight with you all day long if I have this to. Safe, okay. <laughs> I think Love this is that. a safe space for me. I think... Um, like, so, I will say there's been more than one piece that has said, hey, you all are putting too much into the Thomas dissenting opinion about, like, gay marriage and uh, contraceptives. And, I'm like, I think about you when I came to you and, like, hey, don't worry about this Trump guy. I lived in New York. He's, it was, like, this one time Michelle and I had a real, a real lingering fight about politics. I'm, like, honey, I lived in New York. This guy's a joke. He's going to be, like, Giuliani in the 90s. He's going to, like be mostly liberal and like he'll be okay and she's like you're dumb as rocks like you don't know what this means for women i'm like no trust me i got this and i feel like people who are saying like don't worry about thomas's descent like he's only one of you know he's the only one that did that i'm like no alito and all them they're ready to jump in there ron DeSantis has already come after contraceptives Mm -hmm. two years in a row because the Catholic Church came to him about IUDs. So please don't tell me contraceptives aren't next. They are. They are. I mean, they just are. And here's my question, Michelle. Will women be mad in November? Will God, they remember? I, hope so. I was speaking to a group that was protesting yesterday at the courthouse, and I said, stay mad until November. I mean, why now? Why did this come out now? You know, certainly not, wasn't going to come out closer to November. And I don't understand why they didn't have it come out after November unless they wanted to fire up a specific base um, for themselves. I don't know. They don't have anything to worry about, do they? They have a, a Supreme Court that is, um, is following whatever. I do think it, I do, I mean, in my limited predictive abilities, which are, you know, if you bat 300, you're a Hall of Famer at this point. I do think it impacts, like, I've thought, I've actually, I, I put my predicted money on, I don't think the Senate's going to go to the Republicans. I think clowns like Herschel Walker are going to are gonna keep them from winning, like, key races. Um, yeah. You know, I know that's easy to say, uh, but I really, and I think, like, I, I still don't think Rubio, I mean, I, I think, I actually think that it will be a red wave, and I do think that the one person that could benefit is Val Demings. I've always thought that Rubio is not as strong as DeSantis, and he's not liked by Republicans mm-hmm. to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And like, there's always a surprise. There's always like one break. And if like, if we woke it's up- just in, such a weak character. Yeah. If we woke up in November a and the Republicans won back the House and had a good, you know, cycle, I could still see Rubio like just not getting by because he's just so milk toast for that. You know, he wasn't that way as a speaker. It's interesting to see- what direction he's taken because I I thought as a speaker in in the in the house he was uh he was more like Richard than he was yes. um who you got along with famously right I mean didn't you St- I, I just missed a call from him uh, I mean that's actually, <laughs> um he uh I think he I think he's still suffering from like PTSD from from Trump like I really oh, do think he he was battered I he think really he was battered really, he got beat up so bad he just hasn't figured out his way and I don't think he's beloved by other members. I think there was some immigrant, the Gang of Eight stuff. Like he, when he put, he wouldn't support his own bill on the immigration reform. There was a loss there amongst them. And I just don't feel like the Cornins of the world, et cetera, have embraced him. And he's, and like the, the lunatics, Holly and Cruz and all that, they're 
so busy being lunatics that they don't have room for him. So he's kind of in this like odd space. And yeah. and Scott doesn't really I don't think Rick Scott's like a huge fan. They're both pretty quiet senators all in all, I think. They are. Considering they really are the very fact quiet. that they're coming from such a big state. Scott's taken on a bigger role with the NRSC now, but um, we, I'm looking at your Which staffers. Which makes me really but, happy that my senator is more focused on the NRSC than, you know, Florida. But um, <laughs> the, I see your aide answering phone. So let's, can we pivot to a couple of fun topics really quick? Yeah, let's that, do that. Yeah, let's pivot. We need to All right, so feel better. I was just thinking, all right, so one of the best um, things you've ever <laughs> done for our family was when Michelle was in the hospital and we were being blessed with like the food train and like people were sending over great food and stuff like that. All of a sudden it was Reggie Cardozo and Stephanie came back from your house and they had all these Tupperware dishes or uh, storage dishes. And there was just the most incredible food ever. And it was like 10 different dishes. There was fish, there was beans, there was, I don't even remember all of it. Was I just... was so thrilled to hear about it when I was <laughs> on a liquid diet. <laughs> no, but I was, cause it was, I, as I told you, I was so grateful that Ella was getting some really good home-cooked f- food that she would actually yes. eat, too, because, you know, that was hard to come by. I mean, she learned how to manage Uber Eats very well while I was in the hospital. But <laughs> God bless her. So here's my hot take question for you. Okay. Did the Columbia Restaurant, which your neck of the woods, yes. is, did it deserve a Michelin star? And I asked only because, like, I thought about it the other day. And this is like yeah, a and that is a really good question. It is the the designation is is it worthy of a destination? That absolutely. Is the, and I think absolutely. I, I haven't even considered that, but you're right. It is. It is. Abs- right, so there it are is better an experience. Food. There's honestly. better food in some places, and there's inventive. There's and no can, better salad in the entire world. Oh, there's no man, better salad. The 1905 it, salad. The 1905 is just the greatest salad. It's ever. epic. It, it really is. Epic. is. It's epic. I don't know that it has the wine list, and sometimes that doesn't always matter. Obviously, like we saw a thing like the best restaurant in the country right now, according to the Beard Awards, is a like an Indian takeout food, and they don't like have. Like that's anyone, that's like, been their trend though. They're they're they've been awarding stars yeah. more like the Vietnamese woman that cooks with the goggles on. Yes, and, yes. you know, she's a food stall too, and she's uh you know legendary. Uh, so they've kind of moved away from their, uh, you know, china plates that must bear yeah. the name of the restaurant, and they've taken a different approach. I think they're following the people actually because I think there are foodies like us. Who would love a good food stall anywhere? I just read a New York Times article. They started, so the Times took away the star system during the pandemic. Uh-huh. They brought it back, first review, and it's literally a, it's not even a food truck, the guy says. It's a food trailer, basically, in the upper, the upper Bronx, I think like on 143rd, which is so up there. You're basically, like, I don't even know where that is. Um, and he does, um, they say, um, you know, I butcher all Spanish, so I won't even try it. Like the pork from Puerto Rico. Like if you're driving around Puerto Rico, there's just food trucks everywhere. Pinchos, the ones yeah. on the sticks. And he's just, he chops oh, it so up good. himself. And he says, it's it, my mouth's watering just when I was watching the video of it. And he gave it three stars. He said it was that insane of a dish. And so uh, going back to my original question, is uh, do you agree, in fact? Because I'll take that position. I do. It deserved a, a Michelin star for... I do. And, you know, restaurants wax and wane and there's typically a life cycle but let's look at this place it's over a hundred years old and it has survived back in the 70s when 7th avenue was a ghost town and i can tell you that because i went to the junior college there there was nothing there but artists 
that were painting in these old buildings. Um, the I Columbia. Went to the campus of HCC you did? Too. Yes, oh, yes. And so um, they survived. And I think that it is a destination restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I take great pride in taking someone from out of town to see the show and have dinner or just be there. I mean, it's. To me, it's a, it's a place of comfort and happiness. My grandfather would work in the cigar factories all day, um, and then he would wait tables at night, and they, he was part of a union um, that would rotate between Las Novedades and the Columbia. Mm. And so, um, you know, for all of those reasons, I love the Columbia. We were down at the one in St. Armand Circle. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, for my 40th birthday. It was, I, I, I actually sent a note to Richard Gonsmart, the owner. I sent a note to Richard and said, it was eight o'clock on a Saturday night packed in, you know, this is like after the restaurants had opened. It was the cleanest restroom in a bathroom that I've ever been mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you the have 500 people. The restaurant across the board was perfectly perfect. clean. And the service levels were service. excellent. It was still like, it is one of like the last remaining like restaurants, I feel like with the old time classic, like professional servers were like it's you know like, yes I, because yeah. i'll say like during the pandemic burns lost a lot of their old time yes servers and they now did. it's a younger crew right mm-hmm. and it, it's a different feel and like that's it is my a different hot take feel. my hot take is i don't think burns deserved a michelin star and i think that they got it right by not giving them one but i do think that the columbia deserved one uh, you know where i came down the on columbia this is much i thought more the wine list deserved and uh, what was my argument with you it's okay to have a wine list, but you actually have to have the bottles that are on the list. And my experience has been when you try to order some of the more rare bottles, not even not rare, there. rare. Like You're you not would like give outrageous. them a price range, but and it wasn't insane. It was like nice occasion. And like if you if under five hundred, yeah. Like if you like tell you like your sommelier like <laughs> going to spend five hundred dollars on a bottle, and they suggest a hundred dollar bottle. You're like that's not what I meant. Like, <laughs> Or you're like, okay, 300 and then they tell you every suggestions bottles you already have in your wine fridge at home, and they're not fancy. Like, we're talking Vuv Lacoste. Right. No, that doesn't no, work. That's, no, when the Disney cruise ship has a better wine selection at a price point, I'm sorry. I, I've been there that's twice. That's interesting. And I've had, we've had bad, we just have had back-to-back, or we've had, I've had bad experiences. I'll take the Columbia all day long. I would those. rather, if you told me, like, hey, do you want to go to the Columbia for a perfect meal or Burns? I would actually go to the Columbia. Just I also like like the real dishes, like not just the 1905 and the stuff. Like the uh, their their bigger entree dishes are, you know, I love Spanish. I love Spanish food Me in general. Too. So, you know, I grew up eating yellow rice and chicken, and I can make it with my eyes closed. Yeah, <laughs> but um, oh, I need your recipe. Okay, it's my favorite thing to make. You need to just come over. I'll come it, over. And I, I don't have you anything like written cook, down. Right? You like I. To just have people over. It is my happy place. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, chopping vegetables takes me. Same. And Anna too. You know, it just takes us to a different place. But nothing really makes me happier than sharing food and someone saying that was so delicious. That's a, a, and my mother was the same way. So, you know, it's it's my source of happiness. It's uh it's the hug and the love that I dispense. And during the pandemic, I would cook. Uh I would work and then cook uh in the afternoons and I would put it all in packaging and I would drop it off to oh. Mike and Melanie Griffin, uh, Jonathan Brill and and Wendy Brill. And I just had a, you know, and that was the way my husband and I got, actually got out of the house. We would, oh, that's so awesome. We would make a, a, a circle. I'd drop off at Sean Shaw's house, and then I kind of got it. People got into making pies 
um, I got into making chutneys. So I was dropping oh, off really chutneys. Oh, yeah. chutney. oh, oh God, so do I. We were just in, so we were in London two weeks ago. Oh yeah, you can find uh, some great Indian food there. We, oh my gosh, that's all I like, because I've been like on a pretty strict meal plan to try to get my body back on track after my illness. And I said to him before we went to London, like, I'm going to eat all of the curry that I want. <laughs> Good for you. In London, and I'm I, not going to feel bad about it. Thank you, because that's that, all I can dream of. Is Indian, Indian food, food there. is, you know, cooking it and understanding the spices. It is so complex. Mm-hmm. There are so much that goes into all of it, but is there anything that tastes much better than a good curry? I, I love oh. good curry. And it's so... Curry and Cuban food are my two comfort foods. <laughs> exactly. Like, this Irish, English, and Scottish girl, I, I love Cuban food. I was just going to ask one of my favorite funny. things to cook. Isn't it's that funny. That's my tampa, great. It's my That's your heritage. roots, yeah. yeah. You know, I think people don't understand the influence of those uh, cigar factory workers and the influence they had on Tampa. I, if it hadn't been for those immigrants that came to work the cigar factory, and at one time there were almost 200 factories in Ybor City, um, I think we'd just be in a little redneck town, but we added so much flavor and so much. It's, it was kind of like New Orleans where they mm-hmm. created this this tolerance and acceptance. I never, um, you know, I never felt, I, I went to a school where there weren't many Latinos and, you know, with a last name like Gonzalez, I never felt like anyone was uh, discriminating against me. So In a way that, and that, and this isn't to get religious, but like that Catholic infusion into Tampa definitely separates it out from a lot of other kind of like Florida cities, uh, you know, other than like Miami, uh, but like, and that it is prevalent there. There, you Mm -hmm. know, you think about like some of the big churches, you think about some of the big schools, it just, there is that, and and it's, it's my favorite aspect of Catholicism. It's that social aspect of you know the old fairs and you know uh, you know the food festivals school carnivals and carnivals and you know the priest would the priest would have a beer with you you know Mm -hmm. because you know i mean they just they would they would out drink you you know it would be you know father o'fooligan from you know (laughs) um well you've been to the saint paul's fair right like and you've seen you've seen it go down it goes down it's fun it's fun that's i never miss the saint raphael's yeah, that go. Oh, those Knights of Columbus know how to. They 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 pour. Out, they've got a heavy pour. Um, yep, I chaired a Christ the King Carnival one year, or a couple of years actually, and um, it was a labor of love. But we had so much fun. We, the kids loved it. Um, we got to get to our next uh, our next segment. But I want to ask about two of our other favorite people. How are the kids? How was? I mean, I. Gosh, I haven't talked to Anna in a little bit. You know, it like ebbs and flows. I th- usually during, I'm sure, like in about two or three more weeks, campaign season. Like, it'll be rapid <laughs> fire, you know, back and forth with she and I. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, she's busy. I mean, she has clients that are national, so she spends a lot of time traveling to D.C. And um, I think City of Nashville is one of her clients. So oh, wow. she's busy. Um, and what time she does have, to socialize her and her partner, the mayor of Tampa, Mayor Jane Castor, are attending events. Yeah. So um, my mom is in a nursing home not far from where she lives. So yesterday my mom and I drove by, did a drive-by, and Anna um, came out to see her grandmother and brought her some homemade chicken soup right off the stove that she was Aww. making. But, um, you know, she, her and I were just talking the other day about how we just don't have time to cook the way we did. I guess it was a pandemic that slowed us all down, and 
um, if nothing else, the pandemic uh, reminded of all of us what's really important in life, isn't it? Family and taking some time for each other. I hadn't spent that much time at home since I was in the seventh grade, I think, because after that I started working at a little ice cream shop and uh, kept working long after that. You've been working ever since. Ever since that. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely it got us closer. We, you know, it's a blessing in disguise that we got to, it, as Michelle says, it kind of, it didn't push off the time on Ella, but it's like, she didn't we got to a, pause her. Yeah, to, she didn't become a like, tween. Yeah. yeah, we got to pause her for a little bit and because we kept her home mm-hmm. uh, and homeschooled her for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, not, and not, that wasn't rooted in fear, to be very clear. It was, I always have wanted to do it and I just decided that the universe gave us an opening. Right. And I decided it would be more consistent for her. I just didn't want to deal with school closures and I didn't want her to have to be behind a computer screen. And again, there's that privilege, right, that I could say, you just homeschool me for a year and he said of course and um but it it was a great blessing like i'm grateful mm-hmm. for the time and you're right there's something about I, I miss some of the simplicity where you could just spend the time cooking spreading love and and we're lucky that we could do that you know well, my I, father was a chef i mean so it's like and my i fell in love with michelle you know Partially, she knew to get to me through my stomach. She, you know, she made mushroom bisque. Very, 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 like. We just started dating yeah. during Lent, and he gave up. Oh, he gave it. up dairy, salt, <laughs> and meat. Wow, Peter. Yeah, that was, it was rocky. It was really hard. Yeah, she it was, was really hard to cook I don't know that it. she was going to. Most people sacrifice with alcohol, but you went all in, I, didn't I, I, you? I, I, you did not sacrifice the alcohol. Not sacri- yeah. The vodka was still flowing, uh, but she oh. made mushroom bisque, and I was just like. I may need to stick around here for a little bit, a while longer. I also made you a vegan mushroom stroganoff. That's yeah, fine. you crushed it. Yeah. All right. Whenever my mom was worried about something, she would make sacrifices to different saints. Mm-hmm. And she would do like a six-month sacrifice for no bread. And I remember it being on the calendar. Oh, I love um, that. She really did. And so I made the sacrifice for this race that I'm not having any alcohol. And this has been going on for months until election night. So that's my little sacrifice. I like that. I yeah. like that. I mean, I think that's really smart. Got to be at the top of my game. Where would your yeah. election party night be? Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that yesterday. I'm not really sure, but I'll let All you right, know. We'll make sure that a good bottle is sent there for you to celebrate. Mm-hmm. That night. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining Gosh, us. Gosh, it was today. a pleasure. Call it me back. So nice. I love it. Yeah, long. we could talk all we day could, long with couldn't you. We could, couldn't we? Thanks. And I'm definitely going to take you up on coming over to learn how to make your chicken and rice. Honestly, let's just do a girls' class. We'll get a few people. That would be so much fun. Yes. All right. My family included capers in there, and they're mm-hmm. not. My mom just adopted that dish. Makes it kind of greasier. I had a great great grandmother that landed in New Orleans. Okay. And she had the influence yeah. of the flavors of New Orleans, and there is nothing like knowing how to season your food. And I think that's why my son is so successful yeah. um, at Big Race Fish Camp because he, you know, created a spice blend for that grouper. And not only does it start with you know, trash in, trash out. So you have to start with, you have to make the sacrifice to buy good spices and good ingredients. His fresh grouper comes off the dock here somewhere. Madeira Beach, I bet yeah. you. It's yeah. at, um, I know where you, we know um, the guy who used to own the, where most of the fish come yeah. in. That get fresh, the never frozen, and uh, then seasoned well. There's nothing like looking at a beautiful plate and taking a bite and like, 
if I have to add salt to a dish, it's not a good dish. You know? Accurate. Yeah. So. Same thing. Let's All right. So here's my last question to you, Peter. Oh, okay. And Michelle, uh, butter or olive oil? Depends on what you're cooking, right? I yeah. mean. My family is half French. I say I cook a lot dad, of French food. Yeah. So. Do you really? I do. Well, you'll have to teach me something I French. love the slow. Me too. Like, I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to make French scrambled eggs, and it takes yeah. like 40 minutes because it's wow. very, very low heat. It's like on a low, low simmer and just constant whisking with a lot of cream and a lot of butter. So I'm going to have to lean butter, but I also really appreciate the way olive oil can bring out flavors on my vegetables. And I know. Like... I think well, right now I'm doing more like oils and things yeah, like that. Yeah, we're doing no butter like, right I'm, now. We're yeah, very yeah. Like I'm doing, yeah, more. But like I can just think of my my father worshipped butter. And yeah. it just. But like, it has to be good butter. It has to be right. good. Right, yeah. by that store brand butter. Right. That's my point. You know, it's like good ingredients in, good ingre- good product out. What are you, olive oil or butter? I'm butter. Yeah, I okay. am. And, and you know, some of my, uh, my roots in Ybor City would probably raise an eyebrow, but God, I do love the taste of butter and uh, in so many good things. When we were over in like in Europe, where there's less just like preservatives put into the food, and it's just you know it, it's more farm like there's genuine farm freshness to it. It's insane how good the butter is. I mean, you're just yeah. like you, it's it's. I don't want to say it's like ice cream because Jesus, that's a little much. But it's just so so how, good. a little how, flaky salt on top. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. How did we fall? F- Pray to substandard food in this country. I mean, the first time I went to New Orleans, Anna was 21, um, and we were roaming around. There was this open air kind of bar, and I sat at the corner of the bar. I was starving, and um, I just ordered red beans and rice. Mm-hmm. But that was the most delicious dish. I think I still think of it now today. Anna's going to be 50, and still I think about. Those red beans and rice. Now, I can make a good red bean, but I don't know. I mean, the depth and the complexity of that pot of beans was amazing. You want to say that it's an economic thing and it's not all the time because it's like McDonald's versus like what does cooking red beans and rice, which is not an expensive dish, Mm -hmm. cost and how much you can. It still costs more than getting food for McDonald's on the dollar menu. That's unfortunate. I I understand that. But over time, like. You know, healthcare costs and everything like that. If we if we were not feeding our entire country McDonald's, I bet we you wouldn't have, we wouldn't have problem that we, we have wouldn't have country. the you know yes. And so I think like globally, the the money that it would like if the government was like, hey, why don't you eat more of this? You know, then, what it all comes back to supporting those women and babies from the oh, beginning, and not that. just being worried about the babies when they're in the womb, actually worrying about them once they're out. Well, fresh. it would be nice if fresh produce and, and fruit were more affordable as well. I mean, you see families that are barely getting by, and one of the, you know, what's missing in their pantry is fresh, fresh. food. Well, and I we, mean, we spend so much money on fresh We do. I do, too. Stuff. It's, and, we, and we have the luxury of going to the market a lot. Mm-hmm. to get it and a lot of people mm-hmm. don't have that like no. a lot of people are doing their shop for two weeks i mean mm-hmm. one of the th- i will say but what you know part of the food cost is we put so much emphasis on on meat which is so expensive and so you know is so bad for our environment and you know and that raises the overall cost of you know it's if you're a farmer and you want to raise this versus that you know cattle's going to make you a lot more money than corn or whatever and so mm-hmm. it, and then you know you think about 
you started adding 100 million middle-class Chinese every 10 years now. And what the first thing I remember Jeez. reading, what is the first thing that a person wants when they go from being poor to, to middle class? It's shrimp cocktail. Shrimp cocktail, <laughs> steak, food, meat. And so you start, and so the demand on meat everywhere in the world becomes, you know, that much more. So all of that just can, where we should be. My favorite restaurant in the world where I, I got to train at, but I didn't get to make it onto the floor because I came back was 11 Madison Park. You know, and 11 Madison made this incredible decision a couple of years ago, right up, or no, after, as they were coming out of the pandemic, Chef Hum went with a completely vegan menu um, down to butter. He makes the butter from sunflower seed. Um, oh, wow. And although there is some allowance, they say for some butter things, like, there's been some issue about. Yeah, he's what, not been able. He, he's not full vegan because they have not been able to replace. They, butter they can't completely. get wow. the butter thing is a big battle. But he basically he's not there just to create this vegan menu for affluent you know people. He's like it's just our system's not sustainable like this. We can't do it. And so he's out there now thinking in five years. I'm re- I mean I we go back and forth with it. I'm almost there, but then we just ate steak all last week. So no. Well, it's because we were at a place that had no healthy options. The cleanest meal I could get was a simple piece of steak. A simple piece of steak and some roasted broccoli. Yeah, yeah. It was mm. Georgia. Georgia. It's, yeah. it's shocking that all of the salads were like chock full of <laughs> beans and corn. Cheddar cheese. cheese. Cheddar cheese. <laughs> I ordered a side salad at one restaurant and it oh came God. out and it was like, it was literally like a half a pound of cheese on top. It just was not edible. I was like, forget it. You know, that's also cultural, I know. And if we can just. You know, start with the children early, maybe bring in the families and say, you know, understand this nutrition. Try to understand this nutrition. It's cultural, you know. I, My mom never fried anything, never. She was always overweight and always kind of trying to control um, all of us in our weight. But, um, you know, when you grow up in a household and generations have made stuff a certain way and that's your comfort zone, it's hard to make people realize that they're killing themselves but they really are all right as much as we want to talk about food yeah me too uh thank you so much for joining you're us. welcome we'll thank you, you both it's been you. an absolute pre- pleasure <laughs> thank you thank you take care guys thank you too so our original plan was to have two guests on this podcast uh but our conversation with uh, Jana Cruz took a delightful turn, and that turn was a little bit longer. So we're going to um, – we'll reschedule Representative Anna Eskamani for – we're going to go see if we can get right back on the books um, later today or tomorrow. Yeah, we'll just drop more podcasts back-to-back with each other. But And you wanted Anna on, and I think that's important. Absolutely. I, I mean, I was thrilled that we had Senator Cruz on, and I was so happy to have the conversation, but I do feel like – we have to have a conversation in light of the road decision with Anna because she has been like the leading voice kind of in this state um, about I mean, protecting she, women's rights. She I mean, works and for Planned the, Parenthood, right? I mean, so she's yeah, been fighting. She's been fighting for so long. And yeah. so I just, I feel like it's important. But I also wanted to make, to be clear that like, I, I didn't want today to just be like beat up on our friends who are on the other side day either. So well, that's, you took a surprising turn there because I thought, like, I know how angry you are. I'm angry. And I was, but anger doesn't solve 
And you're anything. And I'm still angry. And I'm and still gonna be. be angry. And I'm going to do all the things that I'm I'm going to do everything in my power for all of the little girls that I, I think need help. And I, I feel and, and again, like it's not I don't think people realize. So I, I how many people this impacts. It's just and I don't think people realize what reproductive health means, but like when there are states that have laws in the books that do not even include exceptions for the life of the mother. And some people try to argue that that's not the case, but it is the case. Mm-hmm. And one of the instances when abortion is the procedure is when sep- when there is sepsis in the uterus. Septic shock as a result of reproductive surgery, it was my ovaries, is what almost killed me. Now, obviously, abortion was not the—I was not pregnant, but—and I'm not saying that this is about me. But what it's I'm in the saying, same ballpark. It's in the All same ballpark. Like, it's reproductive. Yeah. And here's the—and what I was explaining to someone who argued with me that that's not really the case. It's just like a democratic talking point to try to make them look like monsters, and it's really just an excuse to kill babies. No, it's not. Because here's what happened with my illness. I noticed a problem. There was a mass discovered on my ovaries. It took a series of doctors to get there. My gynecologist wanted to perform the surgery. And after the blood work was done, there was a 0.1% chance that it could be cancer. And so he then had to cancel my surgery because you have to go before a tumor review board to argue why you performed a surgery to remove a tumor if you're not an oncologist. And if they view you as making a choice improperly that you should not have performed the surgery, you lose your medical license. And my doctor said, I'm 99.99% sure you don't have cancer, but I can't perform the surgery for you because I can't risk losing my medical license. And I then had to wait 12 weeks to have surgery. And by that time when the tumor was removed, it was the size of a watermelon. And the tumor had been rubbing on my bowels for so long that they then ruptured. And, and that's what pain. almost killed me. And I was in agony that whole time. Yeah, you were in pain the whole time. Please I mean. know that doctors are going to have to justify their decision, even in states where it will be legal to save the mother's life. They're going to have to go before review boards and justify their decision to perform those procedures. And women will die because doctors will be afraid to do it. Or they will have to delay. Or the insurance will put them out of them. Insurance won't care cover it. Women will die, and you can say whatever you want. You can bury your head in the sand. I am not even, and you know, I wasn't even outraged by the fifteen-week policy that's going to go in effect on July first. I am. I, I didn't love it, but I also like you and I discussed it. We looked at the rest of the industrialized world and we thought maybe if we were a little bit more understanding, maybe if it wasn't as like freewheeling, like as in some places where it's like up until like the day, uh, you know, like it's almost to the end of the pregnancy, that maybe it would like turn the temperature down on this, but like it's, it's not about killing babies. It's literally about protecting lives. And it's about protecting those future lives that women will have. And it's about families who are, who so desperately want to have a baby and they are spending so much money on IVF. And do you know what? 
gets performed a lot in IVF? Abortion. Abortion. Yeah. Because it's going to crush the IVF industry. You have to implant multiple embryos for them to take, and then you have to select. And it's an agonizing process for these people who just want a baby so desperately. And you can say all you want, then just go adopt one. It's and I think adoption is beautiful. They make I the love adoption, adoption process sound like it's going to Best Buy. And, and it's, it's not. not. It's, I mean. And I have, we have family members who are adopted. It is an expensive process. It's an arduous process. It is so hard to adopt a baby. And it's a process that doesn't always end the way you hoped it did. Like with, you know, when yeah. you, there's a lot of kids that, you know, are not happy having been a, a, abandoned or, I mean, it's just. It, it, none. Of, there's just no band-aid. And, and just to put a – to not protect this health care decision. Again, I come at it from the angle of it is women's health care. And reproductive health care is very tricky, and it almost killed me. And I am going to fight like hell for every little girl who isn't believed. And because, uh, again, it's – I hear you. So, Yeah. Uh, how many people have you uh, muted or unfriended on social media since Friday? I've muted a lot. I, I don't want to fight with people. I I really don't want to fight with people. Um, I will say I unfriended someone on social media today who is a Republican in another state who I have personally cared for after she's had two abortions who was posting in celebration of the Roe I will, decision. I will say that is one of the uh, uh, aspects of this debate that I like the least. Um, and long story short, I'm going to throw in my metaphor for where I feel I'm at. Like, I feel like um, America with Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think it's like this cheesy concept. Oh, I'm an ally. Bullshit. Like, you know, it's like saying your I'm rights an al- weren't taken from you. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like I was I'm an ally to the LGBT community. I'm like, yeah, I, I've always been I've now I've used my platform and I do fight for these issues. But it's not the same as being denied being married, you know, or it's not the same as an, an abortion procedure. You know, yes, I do what I can. But that doesn't the idea that you're an ally goes to like the Ukraine U.S. metaphor we can give you all the missile systems and farm aid that we can, but it's your fucking towns that are getting missiled by the Russians and your families are dying. It doesn't it doesn't impact me in the same way. And it's like I feel powerless in a way. And it's like I'm not gonna stay out of the way of it because I I do political work. There's no way that I'm not this isn't going this changes my work one hundred and eighty degrees. I mean there just there's no way around it and I'll, I'll have to reconcile with it i will say one of my least favorite arguments is this like i had an abortion and that's why i'm pro-life because i regret it now it's like you used the health care available to you and you maybe like didn't take the time to vet your decision the that's only, on you that's not only, on the rest of the women in america the only reason to why pay the you price for your to, choice the only reason why you were able to travel down the path to become an elected official is because of that decision. Otherwise, your world would have gone into a completely different way. We're not talking about sliding doors. We're talking about sliding subway systems. If you are 18 and you are forced to deliver a baby as they now will have, the chances of you eventually then becoming a state senator or they're pro-forced birth. And it's a, um, it's just, that's just a horrible, horrible argument. Well, and you know, my argument also has always come back to 
you know how fragile that life is once it's actually viable inside a woman's body during pregnancy. All of the things that you're not supposed to do that you cannot do if you want to have a healthy baby. If you're forcing someone to carry a child to term, they're not going to be doing all of those things. So let's also look at our budgets and be prepared to have more babies that come out addicted to drugs. Let's be prepared to have more babies with developmental disabilities. Let's put more strain on the foster care system well, than there already is. Go back to the first one, to the drugs issue. Remember, you know, like this country tries to pretend, and it is the Charles Cook, or Char- I mean, it's the argument that we basically had Roe v. Wade in 73, and therefore the super it's the bill clinton argument that he doesn't like to admit to the super predators argument that because we had abortion on demand you didn't have super predators growing up in the early 90s late 90s 2000s and there was a lot of children that should not have been born into disadvantaged households and therefore you did not raise a tens of thousands of children who were more likely to become Criminals. Now, that's not my theory. That is a theory, and it's a d- dangerous one. And it is one. It is a dangerous one. It is one based in a lot of ways on racial discrimination. But it is the reality that if you do put out a policy that is going to allow for just more children in general, you're going to have a different society than you have right now, better or worse. And we're just not like David French, my favorite writer on the right, is like the right is not prepared for this victory like they did not they do not have the pro life culture support system in place to support the the babies that are now going to be born in Missouri from forced birth i mean as of you know they went into the Missouri was so proud to be the first state i i we got to land the plane land the plane it's a tough podcast but you know what in a way as i'm sitting here listening to you i'm glad that we're not only i'm glad we're doing this podcast this episode, this is why this podcast exists, is to have a nuanced, reasoned conversation argument, conversation about, about it. the politics of the day. We're going to have to have somebody on that we don't... No, I don't have to participate in that. No, that we don't have... That we no, don't, I don't have to don't participate You don't think so we have to have somebody that we don't 100% reasonably agree with? I don't have to do anything that I don't want to. And there's the point of this debate, right? Yeah. I mean, well... Oh, I don't have ovaries, so I don't have to do anything I don't want to because the government can't force me to carry a child that I, but I would, you know. So you wouldn't want to have a pod with somebody who, you know, you is can it? do it all day long, but I actually just, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this topic. Can so. I be honest with sure. you? I don't, um, I have a hard time like stomaching knowing that people think that I should have less rights than they do. And I know that some of the people that we would have to have on are people that Mm -hmm. have been friends up until this point, and I would still like to consider them friends. And if I have to have that conversation with them, I don't think that I could be friends with them anymore because until you sit across from someone and have them tell you, it's like it goes back to the conversation we had last week. Like how do you look at someone the same once they tell you that you shouldn't have? Well, and that was always my argument uh, for the LGBT community have I guess we still call it gay marriage and it should just be marriage um was you don't David get gay Warner's, married you get married David Warner had a great argument in creative loafing that he made and he's just like if you're looking less at my marriage then you're looking less at me and we just can't be friends like there's just yeah if, it's you, just, if you don't think that we should be married then you 
then and that's your right to have that opinion. Yeah, you can but have you your opinion. But you definitely think that we're less than and then and that we don't have equal rights to you and therefore I just can't sit across the table from you. I hope that we can sit across the table from each other. <laughs> we totally can. I literally just keep saying to you, you have to be careful with some of your phrasing. And like you and I have like a very, we do have a very, very traditional marriage, a very traditional setup. Uh, we have a very patriarchal household and I'm okay with that. You, It's not, you're not dominant. What way? You're the breadwinner. I stay home. Oh, okay. I'm just like, oh, I'm you don't a... treat me differently. Okay. Oh, no, no. You don't treat me differently. You're not you're, of you... Peter. Uh, no. <laughs> and Ella is not of either of us. <laughs> you are like the lead. Poor Peter is do- domineered by two very strong women all day long, every day. And there's the debates that happen on this podcast happen on our the, table. I still open. The, I don't know. We are anachronistic. We are. I mean, you still open all the doors. You still. It's. But. So sometimes. I have to caution you because people are very upset and they're very angry and women are understandably very sensitive. Like when you were talking about your tumor, I did not make the Arnold Schwarzenegger, is it a tumor (laughs) joke? Like I was very sensitive to that. I was just like, go ahead, say it. Don't say it. Go ahead, say it. Don't, don't do the Schwarzenegger. You actually will never even call it a tumor when you talk about my illness. I don't, you really use that word, do I? Yeah. But that's what it was. Okay. All right. Anyways. Um, I, we'll be back I hope soon. people listen and didn't turn it off. I hope that, like, and I hope that when we have the conversation with Anna, like, you can hear. It, I am not railing against anyone. I'm not. You're like, protecting. I'm protecting. And, like. You're having your dear Theodosia meeting or song moment for the, like, the generation of girls. I keep thinking about that song, the, even though it's like men when, singing about yeah. their children. And when we just, like, demonize both sides, nothing happens. And it's like, you're not evil. Like, I, I'm not a baby killer. Like, it's just, so yeah. Okay. Anyways. Thank you for listening to a tough episode. I'm Peter Schorsch. I'm Michelle Todd Schorsch. This is He Said, She Said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.